Welcome everyone to another edition of our podcast, Pitside Experts. As always, Ian Bishop joined by his colleagues Tom Murray from Western Australia and Freddie Wild in the UK under lockdown again of some sort. I'll start with you, Freddie, as we discuss today a couple of trends that we feel are important in the ongoing Dream 11 IPL. How are you doing? Locked in safe and sound. <laughs> Yes, yes. Lockdown again here in the UK. But I'm good, thanks, Bish. Uh, it's good to be chatting to both of you. I've uh, been enjoying listening to you both on Crick Info and Bish on, on comms on the IPL. And yeah, today we're going to have a little chat about um, some themes that have caught our attention during the last five or six weeks of cricket. And hello to you, Bish and Freddie. Yep, all the way from uh, sunny old Perth. Uh, mm. Very well. Enjoying this year's IPL. I think this year has been... Uh, a spectacular uh, event, uh, but you know, particularly given the circumstances. But just the quality of cricket that we've experienced has been second to none. Some of the uh, performances, both with bat and ball, without narrowing it down to any particular individual, have been, you know, quite breathtaking. We 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 said that the central theme around this podcast would be two trends: one of the assumption of the batting anchor if we can term it correctly that way, and perhaps to do with bowling as well and fast bowling in the IPL. Freddie, if I, if I kick things off with you, the, the whole topic that centralises itself around the anchor, what have you made of it in Dream 11 IPL? Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating, and it's something that's always spoken about um, in T20 cricket, and actually chapter on this in my book and I, I think the reason why it's particularly um, of interest to cricket fans is that the players who play the anchor role are quite often the sort of classicist players the players who um, in longer formats at least are the cream of the crop guys like Kohli, Rahul, um, guys who play elegant cricket and it's, you know, it's brilliant to watch them bat always whatever the format uh, but they do occasionally play, and, and, and in T20 cricket, they they're, they're sort of they put in their side to play a role whereby they typically face a lot of balls and guys will bat around them. And often it can lead to fantastic innings. We saw Kale Rahul score 100 early on in the tournament um, where he accelerated rapidly at the death. And it was very exciting and a fantastic example of how the anchor can work well. However, the nature of that innings is that sometimes you consume a lot of balls and you don't kick on. Um, and this IPL, we've seen it quite a bit. And actually, I, I just pulled some numbers together and looked at the strike rate of players who have scored more than 400 runs in an IPL campaign. And if you look at the last two seasons, um, so these are guys who are facing a lot of balls and scoring a lot of runs, the strike rate of those guys, 2018, 147 strike rate, 2019, 148 strike rate. This year, it's dropped down to 136. So the guys who are facing a lot of balls and scoring a lot of runs have been scoring a little bit slower. And just some of those names particularly that stand out, Shubman Gill, strike rate 118, Virat Kohli 121, Shreyas Iyer 123, Padakal 124, Pandey 126, and Kale Rahul 129. So today we're going to have a little bit of a chat about the role of those players, why have maybe there been a few more of them in this IPL, um, and, and what is the value of a player such as that to a side? Right, so so a number of factors that I know that our listeners will be keyed in on there. We've had different grounds. We've had the nature of the pitches in two of those grounds being far different from India, where the IPL is held. We had 
players coming off of a long-term lockdown and inactivity. So, Tom, uh, how many of these points do you assess and agree or disagree with, Freddie? Yeah, look, I think the most uh, critical point that I've observed is I think batting, uh, particularly at the front end of the innings in this year's IPL, has been probably as hard as it's been in any edition, uh, purely because the, the surfaces have supported more so the pace bowlers uh, early on. There's been a little bit of lateral movement. We've seen the ball swing a little bit. Not alarmingly, but we've seen it still swing a little bit, which has been, I think, has been a, a great addition to the contest. Uh, and I think when when the bowlers have gone to cross seam deliveries, we've seen a little bit of variation in bounce as well. So I think the the, the increase of bounce has also been the undoing for a number of players, particularly when you've got a pace bowler that's operating around that 140 plus mark. If they're bowling what I would term as a hard length, which is about sort of an eight, eight meter length, eight to ten meter length from the bat, it's it's climbing into a higher uh, portion of the bat, so it's hitting the stickers more than the middle of the bat. And I think a number of players, and the one that really stands out for me is Shubman Gill, who I'm a, a huge fan of, but I've seen him hit the field a lot when bowlers have bowled that length and he has had difficulty getting it through the field. And he's not alone there. There's been a number of players that, that have been in that position. But when you are playing in India, you don't have that same bounce. It's, I mean, I'm only talking about two to maybe three inches difference where those balls are easier for those classical players to hit through the field on the up. So those those shots on the up have been a lot harder to come by for those classical players. Uh, Gill's not alone. You mentioned a few there, Freddie. Uh, Coley's been the same. We've seen. We've also seen Rahul, uh, Kale Rahul, uh, hit the field a lot. Um, so look, when it comes to these anchor players, to me the the most critical measure is number of dot balls. How many how many dot balls are they consuming? Because if you've got an anchor player, if they're feeding the strike to their more proactive boundary hitters, you tend to, as a team, move to your target, you know, in with, with a lot more ease than if you're uh, if you're consuming dot balls at the same time. I I I have some questions in my own mind. So it's not actually playing devil's advocate. It's, it's trying to get answers in my own mind. First of all to define what the anchor is, because there'll be listeners out there who are asking, well, what really is the definition of the anchor rule? And Freddie, to your book, and I think that's where I saw it, um, the conversation always comes up in my mind, Tom, and I think we've had this discussion between you and I. If there is a pitch, for example, like Sharjah, the early Sharjah pitch, classic and absolute road, and I have one guy who is able to go at a strike rate of 180. One guy was going at, I think my Kagawal was going at 200 in a partnership. And then we had another batsman who was going along at, I think, 125. That kind of confuses me as to, to why, if I'm playing on an absolute road, one guy would take his time and, and just go along at 125 when with very little risk. 
a guy can be going 200 and the other guy at 140, 150. So therefore, batting first, you maximize mm. your scoring because you don't know what's quite enough. Let's let's speak to that. Yeah, well, but, but just that point in case, to me, tactically, you have a different approach in that scenario at Sharjah than you would do at another venue. Right. Purely because of the nature of the surface and the size of the ground. Now, that surface changed, obviously, in the second half where it became quite hard to, to score freely. But we're talking about when it was at its very best. And for bowlers, it was nearly impossible. Now, in my view, your tactics need to be around boundary count. You're, you get 120 balls in a T20 game. You should be, you should be calling your batsmen to measure their performance on boundary count. Now, whether that is collectively, okay, in the first 10 overs, we're wanting a minimum of one boundary per over. And in the second 10 overs, we want a minimum of two boundaries per over. So that's a total of 30 boundaries, a combination of fours and sixes. If you can, if you can maintain that combination throughout the innings and try to get to that 30, and if you just miss it by getting to 27, 28, 29, well, that's still good. You will get your 200-plus score comfortably. So to me, your measure around dot balls is not as relevant at a Sharjah venue as the relevance of uh, the boundary count. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Moody's hit the nail on the head there because, Bish, you, you should have talked, you started by talking about the definition of an anchor. And Moods, you previously mentioned the importance of dot balls. I think you're completely right to draw a distinction between Sharjah type grounds and other venues because Sharjah is such an extreme. And I think generally, if we're talking about most, most venues and we're talking about the role of an anchor, what that role is, is typically to provide stability to the innings by playing a relatively long innings. And as Moods said, I think that's when the turning the strike over, staying busy, um, being at the crease and so, you know, almost protecting against the collapse is what the anchor is asked to typically do. Now, what we've seen in the last few years as strike rates around the world have risen, and this is um, the example in Sharjah is, I suppose, an extreme example of that, is as run rates rise, the pressure on that role has grown because players such as Kale Rahul cannot face 50 balls and score a strike rate of 120 because they need to do more. As Mood says, you need to get to that boundary count of around 30 at some of these extreme venues. You've got to try and do more. And as a result, pressure has been placed on the likes of Kale Rahul, Virat Kohli, um, anchor batsmen to elevate their scoring rate. And we have seen players do that. A couple of years ago, Kale Rahul had a phenomenal season where he scored at a strike rate of 150+. plus. Virat himself has also lifted his strike rate from sort of 120s, 130s, up towards 140, 150 in the last couple of years. This year has seen a little bit of a regression um, and it's dropped down. And there's a lot of factors at play there, and not least, I think, the venues. But I think when thinking about an anchor, absolutely right moods, you've got to draw a distinction between most venues... And I think the role they're meant to play there, which is provide stability, tick the strike over, ensure against the collapse. And then in Sharjah type venues, the Chinnaswamy perhaps is another. There is more of an emphasis on boundary scoring. And the risk with an anchor at those venues is they can play what I would term as a match losing innings. And that's where, you know, typically if, if, if a batsman raises bat for 50, everyone's there saying, you know, well played, you know, in longer forms of cricket. But in T20 cricket, particularly at higher scoring venues, 
it is very possible to score a 50 and play a bad innings. And I think that's, you know, something that's taken a little bit of time for cricket to get used to. And it's probably still ingrained in a batsman's head. You know, Kale Rahul grew up playing cricket 15 years ago, learning that you value your wicket, value your wicket. And it's hard to try and get, sort of shake that feeling. Um, and the Sharjah example, I think, you know, we're, we're touching on a game, I think it's the one against Rajasthan, when um, Rajasthan chased down what was a record total. In that game, Kale Rahul scored 69 of 54 balls. Um, at the other end, Mayank was flying. K um, Kings Eleven still posted 230 or 225, but that knock from Rahul, 69 at a run rate, 69 um, runs off 54 balls at 7.6 runs and over. When you look back, um, that probably did cost Kings Eleven. They probably left 10, 15 runs out there, and that's the challenge for an anchor. Mm. I, I also want to, to, to find out as well, for, from my own perspective, in my own mind, if I'm playing in, in this modern T20 game and I see a Mumbai Indians lineup um, with the Cock and these guys at the top, the Ishan Kishans, the Pandyas, the Pollards, and they are playing so well, for example, that there almost seems no let up from the time they start your batting lineup coming up against that. I wonder if the role of that anchor player has to further evolve because these guys go so hard from ball one to ball six of the 20th over that they leave you with very little room. So in the KL Rahul example, there has been a school of thought that because of the I suppose the lack of form of one or two batters below him, he needed to try to secure. But can that win new tournaments? That that is that is a question in my mind. Which one wins you tournaments? Well, well I, 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 so, you, go, you go ahead, Freddie. Well, I, I think one of the, the key questions there that you've touched on is the rest the makeup of the rest of the batting order is very important right. to the role of the anchor. So when you're Mumbai, you've got Hardik, Krunal, and Pollard down the order. That I think um, you know, there's more pressure on the on the anchor player, and it's actually interesting thinking about Mumbai. They haven't really got one. Um, you maybe you could say Surya Kumar, maybe Rohit is that player, but they don't often. They aren't often accused of you know, consuming too many balls. They can get out, and someone else can come in um, and accelerate. And I think it is very much about who you've got around you. And I think one of my issues with KL, and you, you talk there about his the poor form of the guys beneath him. The thing is, he still had good high-quality players cut to come in, Nicholas Peran, Glenn Maxwell. These guys, you don't want to leave them unused. However, with RCB, for example, a flip side, we've seen them have a post-power play slowdown a lot this year. Padakal and Coley have both been guilty, I think, of times at going too slowly in the sort of 7-12 to 12 phase. And that, I think, is very strongly correlated with the fact that they haven't got as much power in the hutch. You've got AB, and that's about it. Um, Moods, it'd be interesting to know your thoughts, having coached at Sunrisers, where um, similarly you've sometimes had quite a top-heavy batting order, where, whereby the anchor is maybe more more important in that kind of team than somewhere like Mumbai, where you've got a lot of power down the order. Yeah, well, with Sunrisers, their their batting depth was dictated by the inheritance of the squad they got from deck and charges, so. You know that they weren't blessed with the the quality of depth that some of the teams um, have got and and continue. So it's been a, a a strategy wrapped around circumstances at Sunrisers, where it's been a case. Well, this is 
this is what we've inherited and this is how we have to make this work and so, so shape your game style to your player list uh, which is what we've done um, at Sunrises over that seven year period. What we did do over that period is is shape a bowling attack, um, which which is not our today's topic, but that was something that we did modify mm. and found it easier to modify than finding the the, the batting uh, side of things. Um, you know, with the with with the KL Rahul example with Kings Eleven, I just want to bring up a you know something that I thought of during the tournament, and a lot of people were quite rightly critical of Glenn Maxwell and his his performance this year in the IPL. Uh, but I just I just feel that you look at Maxwell's record um, outside of IPL as a T20 player, as a 50-over cricketer, he's one of the most dynamic players uh, in this current era. Now, if Kale Rahul was going to play the way he played, well wouldn't it be worth considering the option of opening the batting with Maxwell and using him and saying to, to K.L. Rahul, will you bat three? Because we know what you can do and you'll be able to see the innings through. But let's roll the dice with Maxwell because we know he can go 160 you know, in a heartbeat uh, with a strike rate and at times over 200 on a good day. So let him have his licence to play freely at the top of the order with the field restrictions and the power play. And let's just see what happens. Let's see what damage he can do. I think part of his form and the issue with Kings Eleven was the fact that that middle order hardly got exposed or the opportunity mm. to mm. have a, you know, to have a impact on the IPL. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what, 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 I mean, one one thing you 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 know mentioned there is Kale sliding to three. Um, I actually think that's a, something that I like with all anchors. I generally prefer an anchor to be at three, um, for two reasons. One is that I think um, you can then send up someone to exploit the power play properly. The power play for me is 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 you know the batting team is provided with an opportunity to get ahead of the game. There are only two fielders outside the circle. Let's cash in while the ball is hard and new and send someone to do some damage in that phase. And then the, the second value of having someone like KL or Virat at three is they are then a sort of firewall against the collapse. If you do lose an early wicket, let's say you, you hit us up there and he gets out, you can send in this player at three who typically will have a good technique um, they will be able to provide some stability and then protect the innings, I suppose, against the collapse. So, um, you know, a lot of anchors do open the batting and players who, who are anchors are often quite well suited to finding gaps in the field. And that's something that does work in the power play. But I often am lean towards the idea of having that sort of firewall player at three. Um, Australia have done it a little bit with Steve Smith, Finch and Warner capitalising on the power play. If they get off to a flyer, Smith slides down. We've seen Maxwell come in at three sometimes. But if they lose an early wicket, Smith is a, a player who can provide some stability against the collapse. That's how generally I quite like using anchors. And then just one other brief point, I just wanted to jump on the back of what Mood said um, with regards to Sunrisers and their bowling attack. Um, I actually think anchors work quite well in teams that do have strong bowling attacks. If you know you've got an attack who can defend 150, 160, I think the anchor is better suited to playing in that side because they can sort of help you make sure you get up to that par score and then defend it. Whereas if you've got a weaker bowling attack, 
you often need to be punching above your weight with the bat, maybe looking on a par pitch of 160, you might be trying to get to 180. And if you have an anchor, that can at times leave 10 to 15 runs out there. So generally, I think anchor players are better suited to sides who have a very good bowling attack. That's just something that sort of, for me, is a trend that I notice around the world. Mm, that's, that's a fascinating point. So it's, it's all dependent on, on the resources that you have. Uh, my question really is that if you're looking at the best teams in T20 cricket, the absolute best teams, and I can call a two-time world, world championship team, the West Indies, um, the way that England are playing their white ball cricket that still has to be tested and proven in T20 cricket to win a trophy. Um, I go back to Kings Eleven of a few years ago under George Bailey, the Mumbai Indians team. Is there really still a role for the anchor player or do we have to change his definition or specify it a little bit more? That's a burning question on my mind from what I've seen in this year's IPL. Yeah, look, I personally feel that there is a role for that world-class batsman, your Kane Williamson's of the world, your Virat Kohli's, your Kale Rahul's. These are world-class players. I still feel there's a, an important role for them in T20 cricket. Um, purely on the basis, um, a couple of reasons. One, it can be venue-specific because not every venue you, can, you, you can't just stand and deliver. Uh, from a batting unit, you know, before you know it, you'll be tumbled out for 80. Um, so there are certain venues, certain conditions where that high quality batsman will help charter those choppy waters and get you a competitive score. And the other value is with the quality of particularly the fast bowling that's around in the world at the moment, We've, we, we, we've recognised there's been high-quality spin for some time, but now we've seen this wave of fast bowling in world cricket. I just think that that classy anchor style, and I don't like really calling it anchor, uh, yeah. that, that, that pure batsman is so valuable for those matchups because if you're having to navigate a difficult comeback over from a Pat Cummins or a Boomer or a a Rabada or whoever it might be, who do you want leaning over the bat on the striker's end? You'd, you'd, you'd feel comfortable and at ease if you've got Kane Williamson navigating that over because you know that you'll still be able to get your six, possibly seven off that over. But if you let the opposition in with that key matchup or that key over where they can tumble out a wicket or two, it can change the momentum of, of the contest. Freddie, am, am I? Would I be wrong? Would I be far off? Because Moose, I think you've just you've made me happy there when you said maybe we need to rethink the use of the term anchor because anchor denotes to me a player who settles in, and I wouldn't say he just stays there, but it's more of a stabilizing, which to me is an oxymoron as far as T Twenty cricket is concerned. So should we redefine or or, or get another word to replace that? Well, yeah, I mean, anchors are used to, to stop ships moving, right? So it's like, exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the term anchor, perhaps, you know, we should rethink it. Um, I, I think um, more broadly, with regards to the place of, a, of that type of player, and I'm making sure I don't use the word anchor, <laughs> it, in a side, it, uh, I sort of I largely agree with moods in that I think it does have value. 
Um, but I think it is an evolving role. And we've already seen it evolve massively. Um, someone I work with at the Melbourne Renegades, Michael Klinger, was probably the early, one of the early typical anchors. Now, his strike rate in the modern game, um, he probably wouldn't mind me saying it, would be a little bit too slow. Um, he needs to elevate, you know, you need, he, he would score a strike rate of probably sometimes sub 120. Now we see that being lifted up towards um, players of that ilk need to score slightly faster. And I think in the last few years, um, we've seen a couple of those guys evolve and for me, or, or emerge rather. And for me, the sort of typical anchor now is David Warner. Now, Warner will face 30 balls in innings and score 45 runs quite often. He's scoring at a strike rate. He's, you know, the, the clingers of this world were lifted up towards 130 and Warner is now pushing that role on to 140. Now, Warner is a freak. I'm not saying that everyone is going to be able to play like Warner. But as we see the game evolve, I think we'll see what is asked of those players rise. And we saw Kane Williamson come back and have a fantastic season for Sunrisers a couple of years ago, whereby he elevated his strike rate. And I think as the game continues to go on, we will see those players have to do that more often. But they will, I think, always have a value because in certain conditions against certain matchups, as Mood said, they are better suited than most to deal with it. They're almost like an all-court tennis player. You have guys who right. can specialise maybe on hard courts or clay or whatever. These guys, the Williamsons, the Coleys, the Roots, the Smiths, they are players who can often survive in a number of different conditions, a number of against a number of different types of bowlers. And for versatility reasons, it's always useful, I think, to have someone like that. The last point I would make is the very, very best teams in history and, and Bish, you spoke about the West Indies side and then also this Mumbai Indians team. The role of an anchor, I think, is maybe less important when you're building an all-star team and you've got these guys who can fulfill these roles to cock maximize the power play with Rohit. Then you've got Kishan um, coming through the middle with Pollard, Hardik, Surya Kumar. These guys all just work in their little block and you don't need that anchor player to tie it all together because everyone just fires so well. And so when you're building a dream <laughs> 11, if you like, you don't need that insurance policy because why should you need an insurance against guys who can do their job perfectly? Um, so I think the very best teams, you almost don't need one, but not everyone can, 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 can bow squads like Mumbai. Um, and I think as a result, uh, we'll probably see, well, I'm sure we will see the value of, of that type of player live on. Right, so he's more of a, a, a versatile player rather than just an anger player like the Marlon Samuels and those guys, which which sends me, guys, and I, I enjoy that discussion. I still think there's so much more that we can chew off the bone another time with that. But Moods touched on a point of that versatile player coming up against the Jasper Bumras and, and guys like that, which is the other trend that we've seen, Freddie, and you've talked about it ad infinitum in this 2020 IPL the fast bowling that we've seen, the Nokias, the Rabadas, the Jasprit Bumras, et cetera, et cetera, and the impact they've had here in the UAE. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this for me is the main trend and takeaway from this IPL has been the, the rise and the success and dominance of pace bowling and, and particularly high pace bowling. And for me, at least, I, I, when, we, when we saw that the IPL was moving to the UAE and that the games would be played at three venues, I thought that spinners would come into the game more. I thought we'd see pitches that would get tired. And as a result, teams with uh, good spin attacks would thrive, particularly in the second half of the tournament. Now, I think what we've seen is the groundsmen were aware of the fact that they didn't want the pitches to become tired and slow. And as a result, early on, they left more grass on the surfaces and to, help, to hold the pitches together. 
And because of that, the fast bowler has been brought into the game. And I think credit to the groundsmen who have done a fantastic job in this IPL in producing pitches that have still you know, generated really exciting cricket. Uh, but what they have done is they've brought pace bowlers into the game. And um, as a result, I think we've seen sides who have done well, Mumbai obviously, but Delhi also early on, have typically picked two overseas quick bowlers and for me I think this is a trend which we're going to see into the future of the IPL largely because the, 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 the quality of domestic pace bowlers in India is probably lower than in any other discipline it's, it's obviously on the rise we've seen India produce a lot of good quick bowlers in the last few years but still you can find better domestic spinners than you can domestic quicks and I think we're seeing now teams recognize that and covering that shortcoming with two overseas fast bowlers. Thomas? Yeah, look, it's, to, to me, it's been, and I know it's putting a smile on your face, Bish, but to me, it's been a welcome uh, rise to their role in T20 cricket. And I think there's a, there's a few things that have come about. And I think, one, I think we need to recognise the conditions in the UAE has certainly been more beneficial for pace bowlers than in general in India, where which I touched on earlier with regards to just the additional bounce. And I think if you're getting additional bounce and you've got pace with that, you are a double threat. If you're just bowling quick and the bounce isn't steep and it's just sort of skidding to stump height, you can get seriously met uh, as a fast bowler because a lot of quality batsmen will welcome that additional pace to be able to put the ball where they choose. But I think, I think the, the real key factor has been that little extra bounce. So I'm intrigued to see when the IPL does return back to India, whether it be the addition next year or beyond. We don't know that. But whether the pace bowlers still have the same impact as what they have had in the UAE, because you're not going to get that same bounce in India. So I think the bounce is a really important element to what the pace uh, what pace bowlers are bringing. Yes, there's more fast bowlers available for selection. There's a, a huge variety that are, are presented to franchises to select from the auction. Um, I think fast bowlers have got smarter as well. I think what they have recognised is where they can uh, leak runs in T20 cricket. Uh, they have, I think, fine-tuned their, their strategy with regards to how they're approaching it. They know they can't bowl with any width whatsoever uh, because that is a, you know, it's a given that's going for four or six. Uh, really, you may get lucky and get a catch down to third man. Um, and I think their softer skills, I'll call them, are also uh, vastly improved. You know, your Lockie Ferguson's, for instance, from New Zealand, uh, you know, one of the quickest bowlers in, in the tournament, you know, he's now developed, you know, really good slower balls, Yorkers, his bounces good. So, you know, those types of skills, I think, across the board for all your fast bowlers are better than what they have been in previous uh, in previous years where they've relied purely on that uh, extreme pace. Yeah, I like it. I, I love what I've seen this year in the IPL for, for a number of reasons. And, and Freddie, I would, I would argue that it's more than just using two overseas fast bowlers. I think you will go more in depth than that. I think it's a quality of those two overseas fast bowlers in Rabada and Nokia, uh, in Bolt uh, and Bumra, who is a local player, not an overseas player. So it's one of each with Pattinson and whoever else takes that place. Because we've also had 
Cottrell coming in, Jordan coming in and going out. So I think it, it has a lot to do with the quality. We've seen Chris Morris at times do well, Udana not. Um, so I would speak to quality. But most to your point about the pace that we've seen on the grass pitches at Abu Dhabi, at Dubai where the ball has bounced, it has asked different questions of batsmen. And when I align that with the Yorkers that I've seen return to fast bowling significantly in this tournament, we can talk about Natarajan and the delivery that knocked over A.B. de Villiers in the last game. We can talk about the Bumrah delivery, which he's always had against Sheikh Dawan. Lucky Ferguson, I think, bowled one to Manish Pandey in the first game that was an excess rocket. Nokia's delivery to knock over Joss Butler at over 150 kilometers per hour. Wasn't a Yorker, but he was quick. So I think it brings a different dimension to T20 cricket. And I'm happy to see the Yorker make a return to the narrative of cricket in general. I think, well, one thing I'd just add on that as well, I think it's, and you, you just touched on it there, Bish, it's, I think it's brilliant for the game. Um, I think fast bowling is exciting. Um, you know, that over from the Norcher to, to Butler over early in the tournament was, I think, one of the moments of the tournament. You know, Butler ramping him twice, hitting him down the ground, I think, and then getting bowled. You know, it's high-octane cricket. We've seen and we've spoken about in length on this podcast about the rise of spin and how exciting that is and how we expect more spin to be bowled. And I still think that might be the case. Um, but I think, you know, fast bowling coming into the game, as it has done, is, is a really good thing. It's exciting to watch. Um, I think it's high pace bowling. And actually, we've spoken about it as well. I think it's slightly related to how we've seen quick bowlers do well in 50 over cricket, coming through in the middle overs, looking to take wickets. And that, I think, is something that stands out about the quicks that have um, done well in this tournament. Is they've been fast. We've seen 140 plus. And I, I dug out a statistic earlier, actually, 25 percent of deliveries bowled by pace bowlers in this IPL have been faster than 140 kilometers an hour. That is higher than in any other season. And in the last couple of years in particular, we've seen a huge increase. So teams are, are resorting to high pace in particular, not just pace, but it's high pace. Um, and I think they're using these fast bowlers quite aggressively as well, looking to take wickets. Can I, can I just say before you go, Tom, can I just say that I think T20 cricket needs I don't think that this will replicate itself in India when the IPL is held in India again, because I just don't think the pitches will be conducive to it. But I think T20 cricket in general need pitches like we've seen in Abu Dhabi. I've said this to Tom before on a different platform. They need pitches like what we've seen in Dubai with the extra bounce to redress the balance that has been drifting away towards spin and batting in different parts of the world. So I just want to make that important point that I think this is the solution. Bigger boundaries as well. So you can use the short ball. You can talk about the Yorkers, but I don't know if you guys saw the Jofra Archer delivery to Mandeep Singh uh, when Rajasthan played against Kings Eleven. That was a phenomenal sight in any form of the game. That was, for me, that was probably the ball of the tournament. Um, uh, that was just fast bowling, you know, in, in, at its very, very best. Um, oh, you know, it sends shivers down your spine even thinking about trying to mm. deal with del delivery like that because I don't care who you are, um, you are wearing that one. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know... I prefer to be boiling it than feeding it, I tell you. <laughs> uh, but the point, the point that, that I just want to make about pace bowling, uh, which I think is, is 
one of the main reasons that it is having an impact in this year's IPL is because what pace bowling does that no other bowling does, it puts a batsman on notice. It, it, it is uncomfortable. Even the very best batsmen in the world will admit that when they're facing someone that's reaching up to around 150 or even beyond, their senses, senses are heightened to the absolute maximum. And it's just because they're exceptionally talented players and they've got uh, you know, a, a robust technique that they can navigate those challenging overs from that extreme pace. But we're only talking about a very small percentage of batsmen that are in that category. So the rest, let's say the rest is 80%. So 80% of the batsmen are facing your likes of your Rabadas and your Boomers and your Pat Cummins and all these guys that we've touched on. All of that 80% are on edge. They're uncomfortable and they're thinking more than just watch the ball, watch the ball. They're thinking, you know, is this going to be a bouncer? Is this going to be a Yorker? What's this, you know, so there the other things come into their head which wouldn't normally happen if they're facing someone that's 130. So what that then does, it creates a, a bigger window for that pace bowler to not only get that batsman out, but to restrict that batsman from scoring because they're not in good position to take advantage of the ball that is a little bit fuller. They haven't got a back foot game to be able to cut and pull as effectively as your very best players. So that 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 matchup for that pace bowler he's going to be all over that batsman a lot more easy a lot more easier than it would be if it was bowling to a Virat Kohli or an AB de Villiers or a David Warner and it's very similar to what happens when you have people facing the likes of Rashid Khan and Sunil Narine and these types of because some batsmen can score not you know not as freely as they'd like, but they can score. But there's others that get totally consumed and suffocated by those bowlers. So that's, to me, why I think these pace bowlers have, have had the impact is because I think the large majority of batsmen are not as well equipped to be able to deal with it and score freely for, for those reasons. I, th I think it's it's sort of um, it fits into a bit of a cycle, and we spoke about this when we talked about matchups. And I think in the last few years, as we've said, um, spin bowling has come into the game massively. And I think what we've seen as a result, particularly amongst middle order players, is a rise in effectiveness of guys who are good at dealing against dealing with high quality spin bowling. And I think those guys are on the rise, and we're seeing players who are better players of spin as a result. As everything, it's a cycle. And to counter that cycle, I think what we've seen is the rise of these quick bowlers. And quite often we'll see them used in the middle overs aggressively. Um, they'll be brought back for a spell here or there to target a particular player who might be a strong player of spin, but not maybe a strong player of, of quick bowling. And then the other thing as well is I remember a couple, I remember last year during Andre Russell's amazing IPL, we did, we did some work at CrickViz. How do you stop? Andre Russell. Now, how do you stop players such, not just him, but players such as him, basically the best hitters in the world, your Karen Pollards, your Nicholas Perans, your Andre Russells, your A.B. de Villiers. You, you, we, we've got these things at CrickViz. We build these sort of strike rate 
uh, grids, if you like, and it's like shows where they can score quickly and where they can't score quickly. And quite often it's just a sea of red, which is like you can't bowl anywhere <laughs> to these guys. However, there is often one soft spot for these elite hitters these days. And it's when you bowl what's called a hard length and, and at, at high pace, it's 140 plus, a hard length is often, and Bish will, I know, speak about the Yorker. The Yorker is a fantastic option to these guys. The margin is, of error is very small. But for most of these players, the elite hitters of the world game at the moment, if you can bowl eight to nine metres, cramp them up, get into their body, they don't have the room to swing through the line. They struggle to, you know, sometimes they might back away, but at high pace, it's difficult to do that. And I think... High, quick bowlers who can hit that high on the bat and moves you spoke about earlier sometimes using cross seam getting a bit of extra bounce the stickers of the bat high up on the bat it's a very hard delivery to get away um, and I think the guys who can bowl quickly and can hit that length regularly are brilliant and just one last point Jasper Brumra because of his action gets that extra bounce from I think a fuller length than most other players do or most other bowlers do and that's why he's so effective because quite often he's getting the ball up into that area where, you know, your Andre Russells of the world just simply can't swing through the line of the ball. And if you can stop those guys, the Andre Russells of the world, then you're obviously doing something right. And I think that's a massive reason why we've seen quick bowlers come back into the game is the ability to win those matchups against the best hitters in the world. It's an interesting one. I know this is a, a real passion of yours, Bish, about this Yorker. Um, and I think that the interesting thing about the Yorker, and this is courtesy of the stats you've shared with us, um, Freddie, um, is the margin of error is extremely costly. So Yorker, if you get it right, look, there's no better ball. It's end of, end of argument. But to get that right is very, very difficult. So if you slightly miss it, you're, you're, you're virtually risking going at a double the amount of runs either side, whether it be a full toss or a half volley, if that's making sense. So the stats here, which you've shared with us, Freddie, you know, the Yorker, you know, is going at just, just under seven and over. If you're bowling an over of perfect Yorkers, if you're bowling, if you're bowling a full toss, an over of full tosses, that's going at nearly 12 and a half and over. If you're bowling an over of half volleys, that's also close to 12 and a half and over. So that's why a bowler hesitates to, to, to bowl the Yorker at times. One, they don't trust themselves to be able to get it absolutely right under pressure. And, uh, and secondly, the option of bowling at 145, 150, that hard length you're talking about, Freddie, there's actually a, a better outcome. You're only going for you know, nine, nine and a half and over. And if you miss it, and if you miss it, it's still only around nine, nine, ten. The yes. damage isn't quite as bad. So, I mean, bitch, I'll let you go completely here. No, 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 no. Margin of error is the key thing for me. <laughs> I, I don't want to know. I gleaned that from the stats that Freddie sent as well, where the Yorker was going up such a minimal amount. But what the stats you need to read around it is that's when you hit the Yorker. When you don't hit it, then it becomes malleable. So, what is the conclusion on this? Because I finally got to esteemed gentlemen who can tell me where this discussion is heading if the Yorker, when not executed, and, and we can talk about Natarajan, we can talk about Bumrah when he gets it right. So we just want to reinforce that. I've also seen times, and you have seen it in this IPL, 
where India's young group, there's a nice young group of guys, the Nagakotis, the Mavis, the Kartik Tiagis, who Tom knows very, very well and saw him earlier this year, have looked to bowl that. So what are we saying then? The Yorker is not in vogue or it's situational or what? I want a conclusion on this because I feel like every time I mention the word Yorker, it's Bishop go to the back of the class for that <laughs> nonsense that you're speaking. I, I, I think it's a, a very, very valuable tool. That's a given. But I think that it's a ball that is specific to a bowler. If a right. bowler feels confident and, and, and sees that as his strength, it's non-negotiable. But if you've got a bowler that is extreme pace, that isn't comfortable with that, he can get as good an outcome with the six balls under pressure with bowling what he thinks is the right length. But asking that bowler to bowl that Yorker where it's he's not comfortable and for whatever reasons, whether it be his action or whatever, he, he, he is going to go for more of that either side of stat of the Yorker, 12, 12 and a half and over. But if you've got a Malinga, no-brainer. Run in and bowl Yorkers. You've got a Natharajan, run in and bowl Yorkers because they're brought up bowling Yorkers. But the one takeaway, though, Bish, is that if you're a young, fast bowler, mm. make it part of your daily training routine right. to bowl Yorkers. Right. So whatever deliveries you have in the bank for a training session, put a portion of them aside to be selfish, to practice your Yorker. I still remember so clearly when I coached Sri Lanka in 2005 to 2007, a young Elastith Malinga, every single training session with a, with a old cricket boot that he had a, a big sort of spike through, he would nail that spike down at the crease line and bowl 20 deliveries at that boot every single training session. So there's no coincidence that he became the world's best Yorker bowler. So that's, to me, the biggest takeaway for all these young fast bowlers, whether they be Indian fast bowlers or anywhere in the world, a portion of your training should be dedicated to that skill execution. Just two things quickly to add on that. One thing um, we spoke earlier, you were talking about if you bowled a whole over of X, it would go for, for X. One of the important things to consider here is that you need to have variation. If you were just going to try and bowl back of a length every time, the batsman would obviously just set for that and be able to, to get it away. You, so, yeah, you know, completely echo what Mood said there about you, know, you practice your Yorker and it needs to be an option, even for guys, I think, occasionally who don't back themselves. Occasionally they're going to have to try and go for it or you're going to become too predictable. Um, it, it definitely it depends on, on the bowler himself and his skill set and what he's good at. Obviously, Mood there talks about Malinga. Um, who the king of the Yorker? What one amazing stat um, about Malinga is that why and why his Yorkers are so effective is because because of his low arm action. I think at least when you look at his split of um, full tosses uh, and how expensive they are, his full tosses are, are almost as, as sometimes they sort of go at like eights. Eight and a half. So essentially his full tosses are hard to get away. So we talk about the margin for error. Malinga can hit the Yorker box more often than most. But when he does miss it, 
for some reason, something about his trajectory, maybe the way the ball dips, means that the margin for error is actually larger for him, which is, I think, really interesting. And a player who is at the other end of the spectrum, and someone I've spoken to quite a lot about death bowling and find it really interesting, is Tim Al Mills. Now, Tim Al Mills is someone who almost never bowls Yorkers. He bowls back of a length all the time and he's had huge success in the last couple of years it's quite a small sample size but in the last couple of years no bowler in the death overs is more economical than Tim Al Mills I think he's bowled sort of 200, 200 balls in the face and he's bowled fewer Yorkers than anybody else he bowled back of a length into the pitch he's got a good back of a hand slower ball and then a high up change of pace that's quick but it's very interesting just to see there two bowlers who, you know, I'm not, I'm not comparing um, Mills to Malinga, and he won't mind me saying that. Um, you know, they're, they're two very good bowlers. Malinga's obviously an absolute legend, but they're two bowlers who've had success in the phase with very different methods. And I think that comes back to the point of you've got to go what works for you. If you can back yourself to land your Yorker, and if you do do it, you know, 40%, 50% of the time, that's what the best guys in the world do it, one in two then it's, it's a good option for you. But if you don't back yourself to do it, and if your numbers, and this is where an analyst can come in to, to help, you can look and see how often you do hit that Yorker box. And if you're missing it, you know, a lot of the time, it's probably better for you to, to resort to back of a length because the margin for error is so small. And I think it's just, yeah, it, it all depends on the bowler in question. Love you, how you got the analyst in there, Freddie. Very smooth, very <laughs> just, seamless. Just, 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 a plug just, just a nice little plug there. Right. So, in, in conclusion, um, as I always say, and as Tom always reminds me and has reminded me over the years, is what is your skill set? Bold to your strength. A yoker, though, has to be a part of a bigger package that you have. It's not the sole weapon that you walk with. But I still want to get a young bowler training to bowl a Yorker for three or four months on a straight and see how much that defines his performance. Freddie, as always, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much to our listeners. And the youngest man on our podcast always has the last word. Thanks a lot, Bish. Yeah, no, th thanks for listening, guys. Um, it's, been, it's been good to have, have a chat about the themes in the IPL. And if, if you've enjoyed the podcast, then uh, please leave us a review uh, and share it on, on various platforms. We, we enjoy getting together to have a chat every now and then, and it's uh, good to be listened to by as many people as possible.